So please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's start today's live service, if we may, from verse 1. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. So chapter 9 is a continuation from chapter 8 concerning giving, concerning the brethren, like the Gentiles, digging deep to take care of the Jewish brethren. And one more time, if you were a Jew in the first century and you came to faith in Jesus, you paid a huge price. There was every chance that you were ostracized. There was every chance that you may end up being homeless. And therefore, it was absolutely essential for those that had Deep pockets, as they say, to dig deep and take care of the needs of others. For as touching the ministering to the saints, for as concerning to the ministering to the saints. Now, like I said last time, if you think of giving or if you think of churches today, you may think that they are both the same and they are not. For the first century, a typical first century church would be run like a family. Mum, dad, two, three, four children. And if you can picture that for one moment, you know within five seconds that if you have parents, you don't pay your parents a salary to take care of you, to love you, to raise you, but you pay them respect. Hence why it says to honor your mother and your father. Back in the Old Testament and for the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to give double honor to those that labor, to those that work alongside you concerning elders, not a pastor per se. For as touching, for as concerning, the ministering to the saints. Saints plural, not saint singular like pastor such and such, but saints plural, like a group of people. It is superfluous for me to write to you. It is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, like I know the boldness of your mind, or I know the audacity of your mind, or the daringness of your mind. For which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, modern day Greece, that Achaia, also in Greece, was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. So the context, one more time, is giving. Giving to those less fortunate than yourself. When I first got saved, I came across a ministry which specialised in sending Bibles to Egypt. And I was very taken with this ministry. And I thought they were doing a great job. And I thought that what they were doing was so important that I wanted to be a part of it. And for a period of time, I stood with this ministry financially. I thought it was doing great work. And maybe it still is. I don't know. But for a period of time, I thought those in Egypt were and still are less fortunate than those of us in the UK. For a Muslim to get saved in a place like Egypt, it's a big deal. I know Egypt has moved uh, towards democracy with a lower D, of course, over the last few years uh, with the expulsion of the Islamic Brotherhood and the installation of uh, General uh, Assisi, now President Assisi. And I know that for many Christians and non-Christians like Catholics and Orthodox and Coptic Christians, they can breathe again. I think it's fair to say that since the Switch of government, shall we say, not as many churches are being burnt down. So naturally, for a new Christian born 
in the UK, uh, used to having a good quality of life, I thought, well, why not stand with a ministry that supports Christians in third world countries? That's the sort of context that Paul is speaking about. Look at verse 3, please. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready, lest haply, if they of Macedonia come with me, and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in the same confident boasting. So, Paul's got a problem. He knows that this group that have been going around, questioning his apostolic authority, have done a lot of damage. Not only have they caused divisions within the churches in modern-day Greece, but they've also attacked Paul. And they put doubts in the minds of those in Corinth that perhaps, just perhaps, Paul was in it for the money. And some people in Corinth were thinking this, that we've worked all week, we've worked hard all week, we don't want to give our our hard-earned money to someone to just go and spend it like there's no tomorrow. But again, verse 1 speaks about the saints, not the saint like St. Paul or St. Peter. On top of that, Paul doesn't want this group, led by one particular character, to stop the Corinthians going back on their word, like Renegan. Because it's like this, if you promise something, you should see it through. If you make an oath or if you promise the Lord, you would do something for person A, B or C and you renege on it, then you go back on your word and you lose out on a blessing. And of course, if you do that, you've technically sinned because you have promised to do something for the Lord. It could be via a church, a ministry or a fellowship. So Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to fall foul of the Lord. He doesn't want them to go back on their promise because it won't hurt him. Number one, it will hurt the Corinthians. Number two, it will hurt the poor saints in Jerusalem who perhaps got saved. Acts chapter two, when Peter got up to preach. And we know that after his successful preach, around 3000 souls were saved. Men, women, young and old. And we know by Acts eight, nine, ten, you got around 8000 that are saved, that are living in and around Jerusalem. And it could just be that for some of those people that had gone up to Jerusalem to worship during the uh, Feast of uh, Pentecost, they stayed behind. They said this, that we've just met the Messiah. Our whole lives have been transformed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And they thought this, that, well... The apostles are receiving daily revelations, and of course they were, hence why it was important to be a part of a local community during the first century. So we will stay behind. We will stay in Jerusalem. But of course the problem with that was that all of their assets were left behind. So therefore it was absolutely essential for those Jewish converts in Jerusalem to be given the very basic everyday essentials. Some were on the brink of starvation. We know from, I think it's Acts 6 from memory, that there was an argument about waiting on tables. And there was a discussion about those that were studying the scriptures full time. They couldn't do everything. They couldn't be studying the scriptures every day, praying every day, and taking care of 8,000 plus people. So they would ordain them elders or deacons, to be more precise. So that's the context. On top of that, like I say, you've probably got some Jews that got saved and have lost their jobs, have lost their homes. If you think of the Middle East today, if you think of a Muslim who comes to faith in Jesus, 
they are kicked out of their homes and they are found guilty, quote-unquote, of the sin of apostasy, which, as you know, can result in death. So a Muslim gets saved, he or she pays a huge price. A Jew in the first century gets saved, he or she pays a huge price. I've watched some clips online over the last uh, few days uh, concerning different street preachers in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv. I mean, this year. I mean, this month. I mean, just a few days ago. And some of these preachers, some men, some women, and no, for the record, I don't approve of female preachers like street preachers, but to watch some of these people, some from Britain, some from America, preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, you can see straight away what they're up against. The anger, the fury. Some of these Jews are spitting at these preachers. Some of these Jews are cursing, cussing, blaspheming our great Lord and Saviour. And they are trying to get their hands on the Bibles of these street preachers. They are trying to run them out of town like they would do to the Apostle Paul. And on a few occasions that I've happened to come across, the police, by the grace of God, have arrived and diffused the mob. So I can understand, even today, for a Jew to get saved in Jerusalem, to start preaching on the streets in Jerusalem, it's going to be hard. I've seen footage of Hasidic Jews in Jerusalem attacking saved Jews. I've seen footage of saved Jews in Jerusalem with their trestle tables giving out Bibles, trying to reach out to the Jews. And I've seen Jewish men and women just come along and flip the tables over. Very violent. It's the same mentality in the Middle East. I've seen footage of Muslims in Turkey attacking saved Muslims. Of course, once you become saved, you're no longer a Muslim, you understand. But bear with me. I've seen footage of Muslims in Turkey attacking ex-Muslims, now saved. And it's the same kind of thing. Tables are flipped over. People get smacked, slapped about. It's a huge price to pay. Contrast that to the Corinthians. It wasn't the same situation for them. They had been mainly pagans. They'd worshipped many gods. And for them to come to Jesus, it wasn't such a huge price to pay. So that's what Paul wants to gently remind the Corinthians about what to do. He doesn't want them to lose out on a blessing. He doesn't want them to go back on their word. But ultimately, he doesn't want his Jewish brethren saved back in Israel to suffer any longer. And this also shows me this, that just because you are saved doesn't mean the Lord will step in and take care of your every needs, every moments of every day. What, is it, you know, what does the old expression say, or how does it go? Uh, the Lord helps those that help themselves. A lot of truth in that. And he does expect us, those of us that can, to help those that can't. I think it's fair to say that the Lord hates a stingy saint. And I'll speak about that shortly. Look at verse 5, please. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you, and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty, and not as of covetousness. So the theme continues. A group of brothers raised up to go from A to B with the money, like I say, to provide it to those that were desperately in need of it. I would be very surprised if just a penny, or a euro, or a cent, or a dime, or a yen, or whatever the currency would be today, would even go through the hands of the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted to be blameless. 
Paul didn't want to be accused of anything. It was bad enough that he had a group going around smearing him and trying to run him out of town. That was bad enough. It was bad enough that there were people undermining his epistles, saying that he wasn't really an apostle, which incidentally is still found in certain circles today. There are certain people today that question Paul's epistles. Some of the early church leaders questioned some of the epistles, even having any right to be in the New Testament. That's bad enough, but to, like I say, not give because of such smearing and to hold back funds resulting in those in Jerusalem suffering was even worse. Six, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. It's pretty simple, isn't it? The more you give, the more you can help a person. The more you can help a person, the greater they are blessed. And if you can help someone, they can help someone. And that person who you have helped will pray for you. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you see someone who has a need and you're able to help them out, help them out. Don't be stingy. Don't be like Scrooge. Don't just sit back and say, where do I come into this? And yet, unfortunately, a typical church, a typical ministry can only survive thanks to the support of a handful of people. And that's the old expression, same old gang. It's always the minority of minorities that give the most. In any church, in any denomination, from any ministry. Seven. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. This verse gets quoted by pretty much everyone. And it's quoted nine times out of ten, out of context. And it's quoted nearly always by the one-man minister. And he says this. He says, if you don't give, number one, you are stealing. Number two, you don't love the Lord. And number three, you will probably be cursed. Now, I've heard so many stories over the years from different people about this particular verse. In fact, just yesterday, I was told one story about a particular church which said this, that... If you, speaking to the congregation, don't give X amount of money, uh, pastor such and such can't preach. He can't preach if you don't give him money to preach. Meaning, it takes money, it needs money to make this church function. It's like hiring a plumber in, or an electrician. It's a business, you see. That's not what this is about. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. Got to come from the heart. So let him give, not grudgingly. Don't be like Scrooge, don't be selfish, don't be stingy, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. That word cheerful, incidentally, is where we get the word hilarious from. The Lord loves somebody who gives because they want to, and the Lord loves someone who gives because they can. They give out of the joy of giving. But of course, like I say, this verse gets abused. I can remember when I was a Catholic, we had a priest at our church who would go to Canada every year. Not for one month, not for two months, but for three months. He would hire a car, he would drive all over Canada. And not only did some of the uh, laity resent that, but so did some of the clergy. And at the same time, it could be fair to say that perhaps they were jealous because he did very well due to the uh, Christmas offerings and the Easter offerings. But he thought nothing of hiring a car and driving all over Canada, just enjoying the scenery. 
not doing any kind of ministry work, of course. It was said that he took his dog collar off and just drove day and night, very much enjoying himself. There was a story of a bishop who died a couple of years ago, and his obituary said this, that Bishop such and such was never happier when he was on the race course observing his horse, racing here, racing there. That was his obituary. That was his legacy. It wasn't Bishop such and such was never happier, street preaching. It wasn't Bishop such and such was never happier getting people saved. It wasn't Bishop such and such was never happier at Speaker's Corner, taking on the Muslims, the atheists and the mockers. No, Bishop such and such was never happier on the race course with his own horse. He owned the horse himself and he raced that horse and he was a very wealthy man. That's the type of abuse that I think goes on, not just in Catholic circles. If you look at some of the Protestant leaders of recent years, some of these Protestant leaders are very successful. They own properties, they own businesses. I can think of one particular person who had a business within a business, and he was able to do so thanks to charitable status. I mean, talk about an abuse of a tax loophole, which these churches, I mean, all of them benefit from. In fact, not just churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, Masonic lodges. It's a racket, and they all do so well out of it. But the context, one more time, is about giving to those that need it the most. Going back to what I said last week concerning charities in the UK. Charities come together when there's an incident, like an earthquake, or a famine, or a drought, and they raise a lot of money. But you're never sure how much of that money goes straight to those in the front line. Many times, a quarter or half of what you give makes to the front line. Some of your money will be put towards staff costs, overheads, which you wouldn't necessarily object to. Going back to churches cost money, yes, of course, and ministries cost money, yes, of course, but like a six-figure salary for a CEO, is that justified? When a typical member or a typical volunteer is working for nothing, or like on a minimum wage, every man or woman, verse 7, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him or her give, not grudgingly, don't moan and groan about it, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So I'll say this, for the first century, yes, the Gentiles were the wealthier, uh, out of the two branches, shall we say, Jewish and Gentile, and the Gentiles were expected to take care of their Jewish counterparts. At the same time, their Jewish counterparts were somewhat suspicious of the Gentiles. We know from the book of Acts that they didn't think that the Gentiles could be saved. There was a position or a thought, a view, that perhaps the Gentiles weren't going to be saved. That perhaps salvation wasn't for the Gentiles. And that's why Peter had to explain himself to the elders in Jerusalem. Paul the Apostle would have to go up to Jerusalem, Acts 15, and discuss the doctrine of justification. He would have to explain that the Gentiles were getting saved. And at first, the Jewish remnants of the church were somehow suspicious, somehow dismissive, somehow indifferent, because the Jews for a long time saw Gentiles as unclean, unholy, and they didn't like the idea of the Gentiles getting a look in or being somehow affiliated to their Messiah. Bit of a two-tier system, bit of a class system, 
And to their shock, the Gentiles not only were going to be saved like they would through faith alone, but it would, would fall to the Gentiles to cover their needs. And that would have really shocked the Jews, saved Jews in Jerusalem. Look at verse 8, please. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. From Psalm 112, verse 9. So Paul is saying this, that if you give, number one, the Lord will bless you. Number two, he will provide whatever you need. In other words, you won't suffer due to supporting someone else. I think it's completely unacceptable or completely incorrect. It'd be wrong to think that if you gave X amount to a person or a people and you were somehow struggling yourself, that the Lord would penalize you or that he would allow you to go into debt. I don't think so. I think what this is saying is that if you give whatever it is that you can afford to give to whoever, whenever he will supply your every need. He won't let you sink. He won't let you sink. And yet for most Christians, they don't put this into action. They speak a lot about walking with the Lord. They speak a lot about the blood of Christ and the scripture. But for many of these people, they don't put their faith into practice. You see, it's like this. Somebody might say, well, I walk with the Lord. I'm very much in fellowship with the Lord. But if you really examine that particular statement, or if you drill in, to that particular claim and ask this sort of question well okay how many people have you spoken to about christ over the last seven days i mean like how to be saved or how many people have you prayed for i mean unsaved people i mean enemies people that you can't stand or how many people have you forgiven that have wronged you over the past seven days or how much have you denied yourself over the past seven days? I mean, what sort of sacrifice have you paid over the past seven days? Most people say, well, I don't do this anymore, and I don't do that anymore, and they become very self-righteous, very sanctimonious. But ask yourself this, what have you done over the past seven days? What sacrifice have you made over the past seven days? How many people have you spoken to about Jesus during the last seven days? I mean, at difficult times, in difficult places. I mean, you really have put your life or your neck on the line. It makes you think. People say, I walk with the Lord. You know, I don't do this anymore. I don't do that anymore. Yeah, but what have you done? I mean, we can all say that. You know, well, I spent 15 hours the past week reading my Bible. Big deal. Have you gone to the streets? Have you spoken to people? Have you gone door to door? Have you spoken to the bus driver, the train driver? Have you spoken to anyone about the Lord? Have you denied yourself? Have you picked up your cross? Have you suffered for Christ during the past seven days? God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Such a profound statement. That ye, verse 8, always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. He's saying this, that it's in your remit to do anything for the Lord at any time. So there's no excuse not to do anything for the Lord at any time. Going back to Paul saying how he could do all things through Christ which strengthened him. Nine, as it is written, Old Testament, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth 
forever. So these nine verses, and I'll close, are very clear verses concerning a commandment. I will say this, a commandment. A commandment given to save people in the church age to give. To give to those that really need it. I don't mean to some wealthy church. Just a few days ago, I went out for a walk and there are several churches in my neighborhood. And I took a slightly different route. And as I was going from A to B, I walked past this very well-to-do church and I went past their car park. Brand new cars. Four by fours. Nice new cars. And I thought, what a wealthy church. Such a church wouldn't need your money. Such a church wouldn't need financial support. And such a church could give very generously, if they wanted to, to those in need. I won't say whether or not they do. I don't know. It's not for me to make a judgment on what they do or don't do. I can say, just for the record, that such a place is an apostate church, doctrinally. It's an Anglican church. And it's run by a woman. So you get some idea, don't you, as to the sort of style or the sort of setup such a church would be. But I will say this, that 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are fascinating on so many levels. You've got a group of people that were saved from paganism. And they were saved, incidentally. Don't get caught up with this holiness movement. Don't get up with this I don't sin sort of mentality and i'll discuss that during a future message if you are saved you will sin you shouldn't sin of course and you will pay the price for sinning at the judgment seat of the lord but don't think just because you are saved that you don't sin like ever that's a dangerous statement to make in fact i'll say this it's blasphemous it's just as bad as saying that because i am saved i can do what i want that's also a dangerous statement and again blasphemous but the context, Second Corinthians 8 and 9 specifically, is about giving. It's about giving to those that really were in need of support. Not the one-man minister. Get that out of your minds if you can. The concept of the one-man minister, the concept of a guy or woman in the pulpit, dressed up or not, is foreign to scripture. The early church was run like a family. A typical house church for the Gentiles would consist of a group of men up in years, either working still or unemployed. They would send someone out by faith, 1 Corinthians 9, like an evangelist. He would be supported. He would be entitled to be supported because he'd be traveling all over the place. He'd have to stay in different locations. He would spend sometimes months on the road going from town to town city to city, and in some cases, country to country, preaching, getting people saved, and then ordaining elders to teach those that got saved. If you want to support a local fellowship, that's up to you. If you want to support a ministry, that's up to you. You're not minded to, you're not mindful, you don't have to do it. Uh, The tithe, like I say, isn't scriptural. But giving, I would suggest from verses 1 down to 9, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, is probably still relevant for today. So pick your ministry carefully. Pick your church carefully. And I'll say this as well. If you are in a church and you are in need of support, put your church to the test. I spoke to somebody this week who's going through a very difficult time. I won't elaborate on the details, but I'll just say this. This person is going through a very difficult time 
And I said to this person, well, can I suggest something to you? Can I suggest that you sit down with your elders? This person goes to a King James church. Can I suggest you explain your situation to the elders? You've told me your situation. It's, you know, pretty serious. It warrants attention. It warrants help. It warrants support. Lay your cards on the table. Tell the elders of this church what you are going through. And if they are the real deal, if they are legit, if they love you, they will come alongside you and take care of you. I mean financially, not just a pat on the back, not just here's a cup of tea and some biscuits. I mean financially, because in the first century, there was no welfare system. In the first century, if you couldn't eat, you you you, you perished. That's why it was imperative to take care of the needs of those that were in desperate need. And I said to this person, I hope they take my advice. I hope they explain their situation to the elders of their church. And I'll say this as well. If that church doesn't come through for this person, I would turn around and walk out of such a place. I'll say this as well. I was told another story by someone this week who wanted to do street work. And this person spoke to their church about doing street work, about trying to reach a certain class of people, a poor class of people, I mean, financially poor. And the church said this, well, we have a program in place. We have a system in place. And you have to fit in with our, uh, with our program. You have to fit in with our system. And this person knew straight away that such a system wouldn't work. Such a system was a gimmick. And this person had to make a decision as to whether or not to obey the Great Commission or sit in a church system, hearing the same old recycled sermons. And this person was put under a lot of pressure not to reach this particular group of working class, very poor people who wouldn't tithe much, or sit in a church system with very wealthy, well-to-do people. And they made a decision to, as I say, honour the Great Commission and forsake such a church. And I will say that if you find yourself in need financially, I mean desperate need, I mean on the brink of starvation or on the brink of being evicted from your home, and your church can't or won't come alongside you, or if you want to win souls to the Lord, and your church won't stand alongside you, then I would suggest that you're in the wrong place. I would suggest that they don't care for you at all. They want your money, they want your attendance, but when you want them, when you need them, if they don't come through for you, if they don't supply your every need, Second Corinthians chapter 9, they have failed the Lord, they failed themselves, judgment seat of Christ, and they failed you. That's the quickest way to test whether or not a church, I mean an average-sized church, not a tiny church run by poor people, and yet even those people would probably want to give something, I would imagine, but an average church, an average church of 100 people, middle-class people, or working-class people, working people, whatever, an average church of 100 people should want to do something for a brother who has fallen, a sister who is in need. And a typical church of 100 people, I would suggest, should want to do something like to reach the lost for the Lord. So Second Corinthians 9, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, continue from Second Corinthians 8, giving because you can, not giving because you have to give, giving because somebody needs your support. Somebody will go under unless you give. Yes, the Lord may step in. He may step in and take care of someone's need, but he wants you to step in. I mean you. He wants you to step in. 
He wants you to give. He doesn't want someone else to give. And unfortunately, like I say, sometimes those that are in the ministry abuse what they get, live very comfortably. And I remember one story, and I'll close with this, of a chap who was hired by one particular church to drum up business. I don't care for that type of thing, incidentally. And I remember speaking to this chap some years ago, and he lived, I think, outside of Liverpool. Liverpool is a working class area in the north of England. And he said this to me. He said that one day I was driving from A to B and I had a couple in the back of my car, a well-to-do couple. And he said we drove through some back streets of Liverpool. I hadn't uh, intended to do this, he said, but I drove past my home. And my home was on this council estate, a very run-down council estate. And as we drove through this council estate, this couple in the back of the car said, what an awful area this is, what a dump. Old cars, burnt out cars, I mean, just a dump. If you were to take, you know, take a view on such an area, just to see such an area. Playgrounds were ripped up, grass was burnt, real hole. But here's the thing, that couple in the back of the car spoke too soon because they didn't know that the guy that was driving lived on that place. He lived on that council estate. And he said this, I was hurt by what they said. It grieved me, which is kind of understandable. And yet, at the same time, I didn't say anything, which I thought was very good. He kept his mouth shut, didn't pull him up. And he said, what that couple in the back of my car didn't know, and they were saved, incidentally. They weren't unsaved people. What they didn't know is this guy that lived on this council estate was highly thought of on that estate. People knew who he was, what he stood for, and they were quite proud, according to him, to have a reverend living on their estate. I don't care for that title, incidentally, reverend. But the point is this. He lived on an area, or he lived in an area, or a run-down area, a very poor area, a part of Liverpool which most people wouldn't want to spend five minutes living on. And those all around him took great pride that a man of God lived on their estate. Contrast that to the snobs in the back of his car, looking down their nose as they drove through this area. He wasn't living a good life. He wasn't going to Canada for three months a year. He wasn't living in a nice big mansion. He wasn't driving a nice well-to-do car. He was living very simply. And I would say that he was probably living almost the way that Paul would live. Let your moderation be known unto all men. So I'll close it there. And we'll discuss this further next week from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. So we are working our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, just cast your eye over uh, verse 1 again, please. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Jump down to verse 6, please. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So one more time, the context is concerning widows, orphans, the sick and the elderly, like Jews that got saved and were living in and around Jerusalem. And for them to become saved was a pretty big deal, like I say. And on top of that, they gave a lot up for the Lord. They stayed on in Jerusalem. They wanted to be part of this new, move, uh, this new movement which we refer to as the church, the body of Christ. So Paul wants to gently remind the Corinthians 
Gentile Christians that they needed to take care of their Jewish brethren. Again, concerning widows, widowers, orphans, young people, the sick and the elderly. The Lord wouldn't necessarily step in and feed them time after time. He would feed one group of people, being the 4,000. He would feed another group of people, being the 5,000. But this is what being a Christian is all about. We take care of each other's needs. Paul speaks about the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians. And he says this, that if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. He uses a human analogy of a literal body. And if your hand causes you discomfort, it ricochets throughout the rest of the body. If your foot causes you pain, it ricochets around the rest of the body. And of course, that is used to explain the spiritual body of Christ. If one saved person is suffering, we all suffer. And that's why it's imperative uh, for us all to pull together. Look at 7 again. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. So if you can give, give. The more you give, the more you will be blessed and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. The less you give, the less you will be rewarded and commended at the judgment seats of Christ. It's not rocket science. And one more time, this, is not, this has nothing to do with tithing. And this has nothing to do with the mandatory 10%, which most churches like to push. And they say, give until it hurts. And they really expect you to give. But that's not the context from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'll say this one more time, that 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 are probably the most misunderstood verses or chapters, to be more precise, in the New Testament. If you go through church history, and I hope most people have taken the time to go through church history, you know within five minutes that the one man minister didn't arrive until much later. And John the Apostle speaks about that, about the Laodiceans. And that term means for the uh, clergy to conquer the people, the clergy to conquer the laity. It creates a two-tier system, and that's something which the Lord absolutely hates. Look at eight again, please. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. It would have been quite a shock for the Jews to have a check arrive at their door. And it wasn't just from another group of Christians, but their shock, it was from Gentile Christians. Going back to what I said last week, that in the mind of the Jew, saved or unsaved, the thoughts of the Gentiles being saved was quite a revelation, but for Gentiles to give to Jewish brethren was amazing, just incredible. Look at verse 10, please. And he that ministereth seed to the sower, and both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. So, number one, the Lord will provide for you. If you are saved, he will provide for you. Number two, he won't leave you short. And number three, if you give to someone else, he will reward you. Again, it's not rocket science. This is the basic level of being a Christian. This is so simple. Scripture says to love the Lord thy God, though your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. In the context, your neighbor could be your geographical neighbor, but ultimately, it could be your brother or sister in the Lord. That's the context from 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. 
But from verse 10, he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness is a throwback to Isaiah 55. Go to Isaiah 55, if you will. And Isaiah 55 is in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Isaiah 55, look, if you will, please, at verse 7. In fact, make it verse 8, if you will. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. Just as well, he wrote the Bible then, because you couldn't understand him. It's only after you are saved, you have the mind of Christ. But before you are saved, you are an enemy of the Lord. You are completely dead. You're like a walking zombie, hence why you must be born again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. That's aimed at... In the context, Jews. That's aimed at the context that Jews under the law. And we can take that verse and aim it at saved people as well. Even after you are saved, you sometimes struggle to comprehend the mind of the Lord. But you can also take this verse and aim it at unsaved people, like the natural man, which Paul speaks about from 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 9, if you will. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. It is somewhat laughable when people speak about salvation. Or they speak about trying to reach the Lord. And they speak about trying to do so via a church system. Or a Hindu or a Sikh system. And they honestly believe that number one, they have something to offer a higher power. Number two, that they can reach the higher power. And number three, once they reach the higher power, that somehow they will be rewarded. Of course, the scripture says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He had to take the initiative to come and find us, because if he hadn't have done, there's every chance that we wouldn't have come seeking him. And even if we had been able to seek him, which I would suggest is impossible, it wouldn't have helped us in any way, because we can't save ourselves, we can't keep ourselves saved, we have nothing to offer the Lord. It's like if you think of a multi-billionaire, for example, or a multi-millionaire, for example, and their birthday is around the corner, and you want to give something to this multi-billionaire or this multi-millionaire, what in the world can you give such a person? They've got it all. And whatever you give them will be minute to them, so insignificant. That's a kind of pitch of the cross of Christ. It's a pitch of salvation. We can't give the Lord anything. And people think, well, if I mess up, I'll uh, do some penance, and I'll speak about that in a future message. But even if you were to do penance whether Catholic or Protestant, for the rest of your lives. It makes no difference. People need to understand that you can't offer the Lord anything. It's only after you are saved does you want your body. It's only after you are saved does you want your heart. 10. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it, bring forth and bud, that it may seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing where to I sent it. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So number one, this is a closed book. If you're not saved. Number two, when the Lord has spoken something, it will come to pass. Whether you like it or not. You can't stop the will of the Lord. And that's why it's imperative to get saved and to rest in the Lord. But Paul has got Isaiah 55. 8 to 11 in mind, and many times the cross-reference back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament to the New Testament 
just reinforces this book being supernatural. I mean, the thoughts of 40 men living on three continents over 1,600 years coming together and deciding to write the book is a joke. You may be able to find two or three people in your town that have the uh, gift of writing, and those two or three people in your town may be able to predict five or six future events, but you try and find 68 prophecies written by 40 men living on three continents over 1,000 years apart, and all of those prophecies come into pass. It's impossible. In fact, one statistic suggested this, that the odds of that happening were 1 out of 10 to the 158th power. So if you think this is just another ordinary book, you're kidding yourself. If you think that Jesus Christ is just another guy, you're kidding yourself. Or if you think that the God of the Bible is like every other God, you're kidding yourself. It's like people say, well, we're all the same. No, we're not. Britain isn't the same as Brazil. America isn't the same as Angolia. Germany isn't the same as Guyana. No two countries are the same. No two fingerprints are the same. And yet people, when they get to religion, lose their minds. And they think that it's all the same. Or it's subjective. Of course, they're kidding themselves. Look at verse 11 again, please, from Second Corinthians chapter 9. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. First Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that you are enriched in Christ. He would say over in Colossians that you are complete in Christ. I mean, that's precious. If you could find one Catholic or one Muslim or one Jew who could tell you with a hand on their heart that they were complete, they were forever safe concerning their salvation, you would know within five minutes that they are lying to you. A Muslim has no assurance of salvation. A Jew has no assurance of salvation. A Catholic has no assurance about their salvation. Being enriched in everything to a bountifulness which causes through us thanksgiving to God. Going back to 912, going back to 96789. You get saved, the Lord comes alongside you. He first of all regenerates you. He makes you alive. He gives you a new heart. And you start off like on cloud nine. You want to do great things for the Lord. And you will do great things for the Lord. Some people may bring forth more fruit than others. Some people may make a bigger difference than others. And you start walking with the Lord. And your whole life has been transformed. At the same time, you have your old nature. And sometimes that uh, doesn't rear its head straight away. It may be some months. It may be some years until your ugly old nature rears its head. And when it does, now the clash begins. What do I do? I want to give to this person. I want to give to this ministry or this particular church. And the old man says, don't give him a penny. The old nature says, uh, let him work it out themselves. And now there is this clash. What do I do? It may be that before you were saved, you were very selfish. It may be before you were saved, you were like Scrooge. We knew a chap many years ago who was a very selfish man. And when I say selfish, I mean very, very selfish, unsaved, of course. And he had two sons and a wife. And his favorite expression was, I'm not going to make them rich. And it got to be somewhat of a joke. Uh, some of our friends would make fun of that statement. He was, he was a somewhat comical man. And yet, looking, at, looking back at it now, he was a sort of tortured man, a somewhat disturbed man. And over the years, he had two sons, like I say. And when their birthdays came around, he wouldn't buy them a present. He wouldn't even buy them a card. 
And his wife, of course, would have a, a birthday every year, and he wouldn't give her flowers, he wouldn't buy her a card. No interest in his wife, no interest in his sons. I mean, really tight. And yet he had one great love, and his love was his car. He loved his car. He washed it all the time. He spent a lot of money on his car. And where he lived in South London, his car was being vandalized. And one day he decided to sleep in the car. He wanted to catch the vandals in the act. Because to him, his car was more important than his wife and his sons. Absolutely true story. And it was around two o'clock in the morning. And he was sleeping in his car, middle of winter. Never mind his sons, never mind his wife. His great love was his car. And around two o'clock in the morning, he could hear some noise outside of his car. And he was on the back seat with a blanket over him. And he could hear these people coming nearer to his car. And he thought they're going to scratch the car. They're going to damage the car. And he jumped out of the car, threw the blankets back into the car, opened the back door, jumped out of the car. And of course, they just scarpered. They thought this guy was a ghost. They just were terrified. And he chased a couple of hoodlums down the street. But for him, his heart wasn't with his family. For him, his heart was with his car. I mean, he must have spent thousands of pounds over the years on his car. And yet his sons went without, his wife went without. And I would suggest this, that had he gone on to get saved, he would have been torn. He would have been so torn. Someone like him, now born again, and yet his old nature was a very selfish, stingy, sort of Scrooge character. I don't want to make them rich, and yet he would make the dealerships in his area rich. He would spend a lot of money having his car serviced. Not a cheap service. He would take his car to a main dealership and have it serviced. And of course that selfishness, uh, bred resentment, and I think it's fair to say that he was somewhat estranged from his wife's and his two sons. But it would have been fascinating to observe someone like him, had he got saved, how generous he would have been. And I would suggest this to you, that he would fall into uh, Romans 7 again, concerning the old man and the new man. But the Lord wants you to give. He wants you to give to those that need it, like widows, like widowers, like orphans, like sick children, like the old, like the elderly, but specifically to saved people. I know there are Christians who give very generously to secular charities. I'm not against that. But you have to ask yourself this. What's going to have eternal consequences? I mean, what's going to make the bigger difference in eternity? Giving to a ministry which is covering the globe physically or maybe through other means or giving to a secular charity which is just taking which is just taking care of people's physical needs i mean sure you can do both if you want to but i would suggest it's much more rewarding to give to the lord's people if you can of course look at verse 12 if you will for the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto god Whilst by the experiments of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men and by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Paul was, first of all, bragging to the Jews, saved Jews in Jerusalem that the Corinthians would come through. And like I say, that would have been, I guess, music to their ears. Once it had sunk into there is that the Gentiles were not only saved, but loved the Jews. And this is a great verse to remind ourselves that we need to stand with Israel. 
Not always easy. Israel is a secular state as of now, but that's not really the issue. The issue is, are they justified to be in Israel? And of course, the answer would be yes. Are they historical Jews? And the answer, of course, is yes. They are beloved for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's sakes. Romans chapter 11, I believe it is. So if they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs, those of us which are saved, those of us which are Bible believers must stand with Israel. We must pray for peace in Jerusalem. We don't want to get caught up in the politics, day in, day out activities at the Knesset or this politician concerning another politician. That's not what we are interested in. We are to pray for those in authority, of course. But when it comes to the daily activities concerning the political aspect to Israel, that's not our issue. We are praying for peace in Jerusalem. And above all, we are praying for the return of Christ. So one more time, the context is Gentile Christians in Europe giving to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. They were heading up there for Pentecost, an annual Jewish feast day. They heard Peter preaching, and around 3,000 got saved. And they stayed behind because, like I say, this was a new movement. This was the birth of the church, and they knew that their, their lives were forever changed. They couldn't go back to wherever they'd come from, so they stayed in Jerusalem, and all of their belongings were back wherever they came from, and there was a desperate need to provide for those people. On top of that, people that got saved in and around Jerusalem paid a huge price for it. And I spoke at length about Muslims that come to faith in Christ in the Middle East. Look at 15, please. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. So Paul takes the statement concerning your salvation, which is an unspeakable gift, an unspeakable gift, and he compares that to giving. And he says this, that God gave his son for our sins, and therefore we must give to supply the needs of others. He gave everything concerning our salvation, and even what we have belongs to him. So technically speaking, it's not your money. Yes, you may work 100 hours a week. You may have to work two or three jobs, or maybe you're living on a pension or private savings, who knows what. But technically speaking, if you are born again, if you belong to the Lord, what you have actually doesn't belong to you. It's like salvation again. Salvation isn't yours. David, back in the Psalms, made it quite clear that it was God's salvation. It was God's spirit that was given to him. He wasn't foolish enough to think that he could save himself. He wasn't foolish enough to think that the anointing was something that he had done. It's like it says, uh, how he leads me into all areas of righteousness, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The emphasis being on God. He leads me. I don't lead myself. He has me in his hand. I don't have his hand. I'm not holding on to his hand. He's holding on to my hand. I'm in him, and he's in me. But ultimately, it is a result of his gracious love for the church. So if you think about salvation being a free gift, so it would be, the same concerning giving as a free gift. And it's voluntarily as well, like salvation. We don't go out and force people to repent. We don't get the thumb screws out on people. We don't use gimmicks. We don't say to people, well, if you don't pray to Mary, or if you don't become a Catholic, or if you don't uh, give to avoid going to purgatory, that you are, you'll be on the wrong side of the Lord. We don't do that. 
We're not spiteful people. We're saved people. We're saints of the Lord. We don't cheapen the grace of God, unlike the Catholic Church, which says if you become a member of the Pope's uh, Twitter channel, you get time off purgatory. Number one, there's no purgatory. Number two, he's a false teacher. And number three, you can't help yourself. One more time, you can't offer the Lord anything concerning your salvation. And yet people think in their minds that they can offer him something. Or if I am now a good boy or a good girl, I will somehow please the Lord. No, until you're born again, until you are under the blood, you are nothing, you are no one to the Lord. In fact, it speaks about you being an enemy of the Lord. It says that you are filthy rags in the sights of the Lord. And yet in spite of that, you are saved. And verse 15, due to his unspeakable gift. One more time, Paul uses that and does so to explain the great privilege of giving. So there you are, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 15 verses. Not a lot of material to cover. But like I said, when we looked at verse or chapter 8, I should say, some weeks ago, I wanted to spend what I could, or spend, spend what time I could looking at these two chapters. And I think this will be week 5, looking at uh, two chapters to hopefully explain the difference between giving to a group of less fortunate Christians compared to what 90% of churches would have you believe giving like tithing, like 10%, so that Pastor A can make a living, or his wife can supported thanks to the giving the tithing from the church and the cost of deacons and elders so on and so forth of course if you are in a church building i'll just say this one more time that such a place doesn't run on thin air somebody has to pay the bills somebody has to pay the cost of the overheads and that falls into one's free will whether or not you want to give to support the upkeep of a church or a ministry But the tithe, the salary, or the stipend, per se, is not found in Scripture. That came much later, like the second century, like the third century. The early church would be run by elders. Men, some employed, some perhaps unemployed, some older, some younger. But nevertheless, it wasn't run by one man. And therefore, New Testament churches were like family units. And for today, like I say, if you want to give X amount towards the upkeep of your church, that's up to you. Don't feel pressured into doing so. And if you want to give X amount towards the upkeep of a ministry, that's up to you. Don't feel pressured to do so. But don't allow yourself to be forced into the tithe, like the compulsory tithe. I remember when my grandfather was asked by the church he went to to sign a particular document feeding into charitable status. Uh, My grandfather was a Catholic, along with his wife, had been for 50-plus years, and his parish priest put a lot of pressure on him to put money aside or to sign a tax waiver. I forget all of the details. And he said this, no, I want to pay my taxes uh, towards the cost of my my country, my state, and I'll give whatever, whatever I want to give towards the church. And he was given a hard time over that. They wanted him to, like I say, sign the tax waiver on the uh, piece of paper which every church in Britain puts towards, you know, puts to their people. I forget what it's called. And he said, no, I won't sign it. Like I say, I will give X amount every Sunday as and when. 
I go to church. And his parish priest wasn't happy about that. But what could he do? But to the credit of my late grandfather, I think he was right. He knew that the money that he made needed to go towards the upkeep of the country. He knew that his church was a very wealthy church. His parish was incredibly wealthy. One of the most wealthier ones in South London. So his money wasn't really needed, per se. But of course, it's like most people who have money, they want more money. They're never satisfied. They want much, 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 much more. You find a millionaire or a billionaire who's content with whatever he or she has. You won't find such a person. They always want to make more money, like Branson or Murdoch, Murdoch or the guy who used to run the Mirror newspaper. Uh, his name escapes me. Multi-millionaire. He was a Jewish man. Wasn't saved. Robert Maxwell made millions upon millions of pounds, never satisfied, and yet the Catholic Church is worth billions. In fact, the Catholic Church owns half of Israel. But anyway, we aren't going to get into that now. So 15 verses from 2 Corinthians 9, and you've been shown very clearly what it's uh, all about, who to give to, and why to give what you can give. And like I say, in the context, historically, the Jews in Jerusalem were the main benefactors concerning the generous giving of the Corinthians, who were carnal, who were far from uh, holy, and yet they knew there was a need and there was a desire to provide. Just one final thing. Also, the word administration from verse 12 means service. And it's interesting because that priestly word is where the term liturgy comes from, which is very interesting. But keep all that in mind, like I say, the background to chapters 8 and chapter 9. And by the grace of God, it's taken, what, five weeks to look at two chapters and hopefully explain the correct understanding to what's really going on from 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9.